This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We're discussing things that are permitted Not things that are prohibited The things that are permitted receive their energy, their life sustenance from the klipa, the shell, and are not from the side of purity, from the, from the side of impurity. Says, and therefore, when a person engages in things that are permissible, but he engages in them not for the sake of heaven when a Jew engages in things that are permissible we have a mind I'm doing it for the sake of heaven I'm doing business in order to be able to serve Hashem and I'm eating in order to be healthy to be strong in order to serve Hashem when you're bringing Hashem into everything that you do you're constantly aware of Hashem and then everything becomes elevated everything becomes transformed into holiness but if you just go about your daily business without thinking about Hashem, just neutrally, just going about, without any thought, then that experience becomes a degrading experience. And it's degrading to the soul, and you degrade that energy into the level of impurity. And therefore, it leaves an impression on the person. So he brought examples of a person eats, eats kosher, glat kosher, but you're not eating for the sake of heaven. Or let's say a person uh, speaks idle chatter empty talk you're just enjoying you're just, you're just enjoying the uh, the act of speaking for its own sake it gives you pleasure you're not thinking about Hashem you're not doing it for any higher purpose then that also that becomes a degrading experience and then the last point that we left off last week was the example that he used a person who speaks idle chatter is an example of someone who's not doing anything prohibited. How is it possible you're not doing anything prohibited? There's an obligation to study Torah every waking moment. The answer is because we're talking about a simple person who doesn't have the ability to study Torah 24-7. He fulfills his obligation by reading the Shema in the morning and reading the Shema at night. So for him, just to speak is not a prohibition. He's just speaking. He's not speaking, he's not slandering, he's not speaking Lashon Hara, he's not saying a lie. He's just talking, shooting the breeze. But since he doesn't have a mind for the sake of heaven, it automatically uh, becomes a degrading experience. However, someone who does have the capacity to study Torah and instead wastes his time and he speaks idle chatter, so that then... It's not just a question of doing something permissible, then he actually did something prohibited. He wasted time. He had the opportunity to study Torah, and he did not study Torah. 
So that's actually a, actually a prohibition. He says, in addition to that, when a, when a person has the capacity to study Torah, instead of wasting it with idle chatter or just wasting his life away, studies secular knowledge, secular wisdom, the other wisdoms of the world, not Torah wisdom. So in addition to being considered like idle chatter, because he had the opportunity to study Torah, and he did not study Torah, and in addition to the prohibition, obviously with, this person has a mind. He's able to study. He has a brain. Instead of using his mind and his brain to study God's wisdom and to study God's mind and to be engaged and occupied by the same thing that occupies God's mind, instead, he's, his mind is engaged by the secular knowledge so that they, he violates, not only is he is it considered idle chatter, he also violates the prohibition of, of, of not studying Torah. He had the opportunity to study Torah, and he didn't study Torah. But he says in addition to that, the contamination of the soul, the way the soul is affected by studying secular knowledge is much deeper, much more profound than the corruption of the soul and the weariness of the soul when a person speaks idle chatter when a person speaks idle chatter it affects your emotions it contaminates it corrupts your emotions you're wasting your time so the corruption is is very superficial but when a person studies secular studies secular knowledge it actually affects the person affects your mind affects your brain and it affects how you think and how you view this world because when you study something it's not just the thing that you're studying you're taking in you're absorbing a lot more there's the whole underlying assumption there's the whole world I'm trying the whole world's perspective and reality that you're also absorbing just like when you read an author when you read an author, you're not just reading his story. You really, the author left his imprint in this book. And if that person happens to be a very corrupt human being, it will affect you. I mean, let's be honest. It's not kiddos. Because what he puts into that book, he puts a piece of himself in that book. Personality, his character, and the way he looks at the world, the way he sees this world. When you read that book, you are going to be affected by that book. Because it affects your mind. And that's internal. And once you've internalized it, it's very difficult to, to shake off. Because there's underlying assumptions, very subtle assumptions, that you're absorbing, you're digesting. When you understand something, you learn something, you're reading something, you're learning something, you're digesting it. And when you digest it, you don't know what they put in there. <laughs> You're digesting all the ingredients. On the surface, everything looks fine, but you don't know what kind of poison, how, how it's been processed. I just said hot dogs, don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> just to prove the point. <laughs> so you, you, you don't know what, what's, what's involved. You know, we just see the surface. It sounds innocent. 
I'm learning. It's interesting, it's stimulating, it's intellectually stimulating. But what went into this process? Where is this person coming from? Where is the wisdom coming from? Where is secular wisdom coming from? What's the assumption of secular wisdom? What's the assumption of Torah? It's two different worlds. One is a holy assumption, rooted in the ultimate truths, in the clarity and the realization and the knowledge that there is no other reality but God. That all there is ultimately is God. That everything is one. Everything is unified within the unity of God. What's the whole underlying assumption of secular knowledge is ego. I. That's the assumption of I am an observer. And I am smart enough and intelligent enough to figure things out and to be in control. So the whole underlying assumption of secular knowledge is based on a cause and effect understanding of the world. Of the world. That's the way the logical mind works. Mathematical mind works. Everything is laws and rules, cause and effect. Everything has a reason. What's the reason? What's the underlying reason behind it? That's, that's, the, that's the search of the mind. What's the underlying principle behind this? What's the underlying rule? How do I control this? How do I understand this? And let me go deeper. And What's the rule behind the rule? And what's the underlying understanding, underlying assumption behind it? So everything has a cause and effect. Well, that whole assumption of reality, that whole point of view of reality, that everything is cause and effect, that alone is already erroneous. That whole assumption is already wrong. It's already a distortion. Because the truth is, reality is not cause and effect. God is not the cause and we're not the effect. That's the underlying assumption of, of religion, of science. Really, the, the creationist and the atheist and the evolutionists are really two sides of the same coin. They both believe in cause and effect. The question is, what's the original cause? So one person believes it's the monkey, another person believes, okay, there's a higher cause. But ultimately, it's all within the framework of logical, sequential cause and effect. And that's the whole underlying assumption of math, of science, of physics. It's the way the brain works. It's the way the mind works. That's the way we're wired to think. It's the logical mind, the ego mind, the ego rational mind. But that whole assumption is already wrong. When a Jew studies Torah, the whole assumption of the Torah is based on what? What's the beginning of the Torah? The Reishis Bara Elokim. Something from nothing. The whole assumption of all the seven wisdoms of the world are something from something. A greater something leads to a lesser something, leads to a lesser something. Cause leads to an effect, which leads to another effect, or leads to another effect. Like a whole chain reaction of a cause until you go to a deeper cause and a deeper cause. And what's the underlying reason behind this? And what's the general rule and the general principle? The more you understand the general rules and the general principles, that helps you make an order of life. It helps you understand life, whether it's the rules of botany or the rules of, of, of gravity or whether it's the rules, uh, it's the rules of, of, of psychology or whether it's the metaphysical rules. But all of these rules share one thing. is a cause, there's a fact, there's a natural sequence and it's something from something. What is the whole 
essence of Judaism, the whole underlying assumption of Judaism, of holiness, of godliness. Something from nothing. There is no cause. Not cause and effect. There's no relationship. Cause and effect is a relationship. It's like something from nothing. It's not sequential. Suddenly, out of the blue, suddenly, unpredictably, something shows up from nothing. It's not logical, it's not rational, it's divine, it's godly. It makes no sense. The effect exists in the cause. Something from something. A little something exists in the big something, but it's hidden. Like a child is in the mother's womb and then it emerges. For example, emotions are found within its mother, it's in its source. What's the mother and the source of emotions? Intellect. So intellect also has is pregnant with emotion. But it's an emotion the way it's, it's like the child is in the mother's womb. It's emotion, an intellectual type of emotion. What's an intellectual type of emotion? It's pure intellect. Pure intellect is understanding the concept. Intellectual emotion is making an intellectual decision. Is this good or is this bad? Evil. Is this something I should be attracted to? Is it something I should be repulsed by? Making a, a, a judgment. So that's an emotion. It's intellectual. It's conceptual. You don't feel anything, but it's, it's a movement in your mind towards a certain way. Is this right? Is this wrong? It's as beautiful as it's ugly. Making a decision, a judgment. So that's like the child in the mother's womb. It's covered up, it's hidden. The emotion is hidden and covered up by the intellect. And then the mother gives birth to the child, a full-blown emotion, where your heart is pulled with a love and an attraction. I love this. This is good for me. I want this. Or, I am afraid, I'm, I, I'm repulsed by this. I want to run away from this. It's horrible, it's ugly, it's disgusting. I want to run as far as it It becomes personal. Your heart, it engages your heart, and suddenly it becomes a full-blown emotion. But that's the child of the intellect. And the child already existed, the effect already existed in the mother and the cause. In a subtle way. That's what we call something from something. When the language of the Kabbalists is called Seder Hishtalshul, it's like a chain. One link of the chain is, is connected to the higher link, and the higher link is chained to the higher link. And there could be many, many, many causes of chains. It's just a question how far back you go. So a scientist will go to this level, and a religious person will take it a step further. Okay, so who started the Big Bang? Okay, so, so it's God. But ultimately, it's all the same way of thinking. The religious person and the atheist and the scientists are all coming from the same place. Which explains why they all hate the Jew equally. You would think the religious person would love the Jew. We're the Coca-Cola, we're the classic of religion. The first, the most ancient religion in the world. Yet, yet, some of the greatest anti-Semites are, are, are religious people. In the name of religion. Islam, Christianity for 2,000 years. Former president, I don't want to mention his name, a devout Christian and Baptist minister, hates the Jews with a passion. How can someone who believes in God hate the Jews? Because there really is no difference. Essentially, there really is no difference between the religious and the non-religious. They're both coming from the same frame of reference, the same point of view. Cause and effect, something from something which is the antithesis of godliness. 
Religion is not godly. That's not holy. What is the essence of holiness of godliness? The very core and foundation, the underpinning, something from nothing, which is something that defies human logic, transcends human logic. And when a Jew studies Torah, you absorb, not just the Torah, you're absorbing that whole assumption, you're absorbing that whole perspective. You're absorbing holiness and godliness. So when the Jew studies Torah, it ennobles you, it elevates you, it connects you with Hashem. You're internalizing, you're digesting Hashem's perspective. Torah is God's mind, God's point of view, from the inside out. While when you absorb and digest math and science and music and all the wisdoms of the world, what are you absorbing? What are you, which assumptions are you absorbing? You're not absorbing a holy assumption. The whole foundation of all of these wisdoms logical, rational wisdoms is the antithesis of God. Therefore, it has a very subtle effect on the person. When a person spends his time engaged in secular studies, it affects your mind. It cools down your ardor and your passion for godliness. You become detached, objective, distant, remote, cool. I'm not going to be cool about my Judaism. I'm not going to be passionate. I'm not going to take it to heart. You have to be, you have to be relaxed. You have to be intellectual about it, philosophical about it. Which again is a distortion. That whole notion of objectivity, of detachment, nothing can be further than the truth. Because when you get to the essence of reality, you realize the modern physicist, as he has dug deeper into reality, realizes that the observers, you can't differentiate between the objective and the subjective. The observer actually changes the reality. At the electromagnetic level of radiation, the observer actually changes the reality and changes the outcome because you're part of it. You can't separate the two. The whole split in objective, subjective is superficial, external. Is ultimately not true. Ultimately, it's all connected. And therefore, from a genuine point of view, Whatever a person does has to engage them totally. You can't be cool and detached about it. It has to affect you. It has to change you. It has to transform you. And that's the difference between Torah and wisdom. The Talmud says, if someone will tell you that there's no wisdom amongst nations of the world, don't believe them. There's a lot of wisdom. Brilliance. But if someone will tell you there's Torah amongst the nations in the world, don't believe them. What's the difference between Torah and wisdom? Torah is also brilliant. What's the difference between Torah and wisdom? Torah comes from the word hurrah, teaching. The difference in Torah and wisdom, you can study wisdom, and you can study medicine, and it doesn't have to affect you. You can win a Nobel Prize showing the dangers of smoking, and you can be the biggest chain smoker, and you'll still win the Nobel Prize, and you'll still gain respect. What's one after the other? In Torah, there's no such thing. Torah has to affect you. Every bit of Torah, every bit of Torah knowledge has to change you and transform you and inspire you and challenge you. It has to make a difference in your life. The bottom line is, after every session of Torah is, so what? What am I going to do about this? How is this going to affect me? How am I going to change? What's the practical implication? How am I going to wake up differently in the morning as a result of this knowledge? 
So the whole notion of detachment, of objectivity, of I'm just an observer, and I'm brilliant, and I'm a master, and I'm going to master this concept, and it's interesting, and I'm going to go back to sleep. That whole notion is already erroneous and false. So the whole approach, the whole understanding of reality, of the ego, rational, logical mind, is, is, has a whiff of falseness to it. So we call Kalipa, the shell. It's impure, it's corrupt, and it's corrupting. And therefore, when a Jew studies, that's the problem, when a Jew studies secular wisdom, there's many problems with it. A, you could have been studying Torah. God gave you a mind, and He gave you energy, and He gave you a brain. Instead of using that mind to be engaged by the very same thing that God is engaged in, by studying the gift that God gave us, His own very Torah, and instead you're wasting your time, you're studying other stuff. It's a question of wasting little Torah, which is a prohibition. It's idle chatter. But the worst of all, it will have a negative impact. Let's not kid ourselves. It will have a negative impact in you. Today we don't have to search far. Today most colleges are permeated with a healthy sense of atheism. Anyone who believes is ridiculed, is mocked. Some fanatics, some fundamentalist fanatics, some ancient relics, some old-fashioned square, you know, old-fashioned individual who's not with the times, not progressive. It's almost like dogma. Anyone who doesn't believe in evolution, anyone who doesn't believe in the dogma of the day, and gay rights, and lesbian rights, and this rights, and that rights, and all, all the different um, ideologies that have sprung up over the last 30 years, radical ideologies, which go contrary to the very, the very essence of the Torah, is is considered, is ostracized, is ridiculed. So the atmosphere that permeates the studies and the learning is one of very, very radical atheism, radical materialism, rank materialism. Anyone who believes in ideology, anyone who really believes that there is something to believe in, is already a rank idealist, is already totally out of mainstream. Because everyone knows there's nothing to believe in. You believe there's nothing to believe in. Everything is equal, it's all the same. What right do we have to say we're right, we're wrong? Everyone creates their own right and wrong. Are you talking about heavy, heavy atheism, which goes contrary to the very essence of what of Judaism, of godliness, of holiness. So it's not just, it's innocent. Well, I'm just studying. I'm just studying culture, social studies and culture, and I'm just studying anthropology, and I'm just studying math, and I'm just studying physics, and I'm just studying science. When there's a heavy preponderance of very aggressive, almost, aggressive atheism. So it affects it. We're not made of steel. A person is affected by his environment. So when a person studies, especially when he's studying in such an environment, it affects you. But even if you're not studying in that environment, just the, you're, you're studying. Who are the people who you're studying? What did they put into their books? Who are these people that wrote these books? Whoever they are and their belief systems and everything will permeate. 
and if, will seep through, and you will digest and internalize peace of their soul. What kind of stuff do you think is appropriate? Okay, we'll, we'll get to there. First, he's laying out the problem. Then, he'll explain the exceptions. But you have to understand, first he's laying out the dangers. Why, um, you know, the pitfalls or the, the potential dangers. You know, when a Jew studies Torah... The Torah, with every aspect of the Torah, believes in wholesomeness. Believes in the possibility of perfection. Believes that there is the possibility of a perfect person. There is the possibility of a perfect world. Without compromise. The very essence of secular wisdom is, you've got to be logical, you've got to be rational, you've got to compromise. Nothing is perfect. Why even try to be perfect? So the whole geist, the whole spirit of Judaism is the belief in, in perfection, the belief that God, who's perfect, created this world as imperfect as it may seem to be. And it's our mission to make it perfect. And we have the capacity to make it perfect. And we believe in that purity, that innocence, and that wholesomeness. And all very assumptions of secular wisdom is, no, compromise. Compromise your soul. Compromise a little here, compromise a little there. Before you know it, there's nothing left. There's nothing left to compromise. There's no soul left. Rabbi, with regards to the physical science, let's say mathematics, chemistry, physics, you know, biology, maybe, I don't know, the, you know, maybe the evolution part you don't like, but in general, I mean, aren't all these, you know, laws and, and, and um, you know, the way the world works, they're all created by Hashem, aren't they? I mean, how are we going wrong by understanding the way Hashem, the world works? Yes. They are created by Hashem. And these wisdoms, right? These rules and laws and these wisdoms all, were all created by Hashem. And you see God's wisdom. But the problem is, if you were looking at the world, and the more you saw God's brilliance, according to your logic, University should be the most spiritual places on earth. Because the more you understand, and the more you understand the, the mysteries and the infinite complexities of the body. Today you have people who spend their whole lifetime just studying one organ in the body. Take the ear, ear specialist. And they, have, they admit they haven't even scratched the surface. This is one organ. And in the body you have billions of, billions of things that happen in the body simultaneously. The more we learn, the more we realize the infinite complexity of the body, and the more we study and we see the infinite complexity of the universe. Universities should be the most spiritual places on earth, the most godly places on earth. And yet we see just the opposite. That's because there's no balance. It's all, it's all pure learning. And it's oh, so obviously, the learning itself, there's something lacking in the learning itself. The knowledge itself doesn't impart true wisdom, doesn't impart the real, deeper understanding of, you know, seeing the bigger picture. Well, on the other hand, if, you know, if the run-of-the-mill, if the average Jew who's not a doctor or, or a physicist is totally ignorant, you know, can't add numbers together, um, has no, no conception of, of, you know, mathematics, science, whatever, you know, that doesn't seem to be a workable solution either. Right. There's got to be right. some type of balance. Right. Now, again, we're talking about permissible 
subject matters. We're not talking about things that are not permissible. We're talking about studying nature and science and math. And there are many practical uses of all of these studies. As we're going to, as the Alter Rebbe is going to explain at the end of the chapter. And then, then it's absolutely okay. But before you engage in it, realize the pitfalls, the shortfalls, the danger, the risk. And it's not so innocent. You see, you look at the world, you think the world is innocent. It's just a natural world. The world is not so innocent because the world aggressively covers up in the truth. It almost cre- creates like a spell. Yes. Laws of nature, everything is rational, everything is logical, every, everything is sequential, cause and effect. Something from something, which covers up, aggressively covers up and distorts the reality. The miracle of creation, the miracle of existence, the astonishing miracle of existence. That every moment, it's a brand new miracle. So it's not so innocent. It, it aggressively hides and conceals and distorts. So you have to appreciate that. Before we can get into how we could learn all of these wisdoms, first you have to appreciate the, the, the tremendous limitation. Don't forget, it wasn't until 100 years ago, until modern physics, that people were blinded. People were like mesmerized by the, by the enlightenment. The wonders of science that they completely forgot about God. Completely forgot about the soul. Completely for, in the name of science. Completely, who needs God? Who needs the soul? That's all irrelevant. And suddenly, with the advent of modern physics, the deeper scientists went into the, into the reality, the core of reality, suddenly they discovered the limitation of the mind, quantum mechanics, the paradoxical nature of reality, matter is energy, the spiritual nature of reality. Now they're talking about ten levels, ten string theories, ten levels. It sounds, it sounds like the Kabbalah. But, for, but this is only today. But for thousands of years you had science and the scientists were very arrogant. I don't believe in any energy, spiritual, soul. It means nothing. So it's not so innocent. Thank you. If a person... First you have to appreciate the, the severe limitations and the ability to deceive, and the ability to distort, and it's very mesmerizing. It's one thing if a person captivates you emotionally. Emotionally, fine. You know, you can tear, tear yourself away. But when the mind becomes hypnotized, it's almost like it can hypnotize a person. A person becomes so hypnotized, so taken, engaged by his secular understanding and by his understanding of reality, that it aggressively conceals and covers up in the truth, and the reality of Hashem. That's the danger. That's a very big danger. And we shouldn't minimize that danger. We have to appreciate that danger. We have to understand the context. Then we can discuss, so how do we go about learning it in a way that is wholesome and beneficial and not detrimental to the soul? Do I have to give up my soul in order to be a mathematician or a scientist? I have to compromise on my beliefs and my passionate beliefs? I'm being a vibrant, passionate, joyful Jew? Is being a scientist means... By nature, I'm just skeptical and detached and cynical. and That's not the way it should be. Scientists should be the most spiritual people in the world. But it's not the case, is it? Obviously not. Why not? It should be. 
If a person were truly objective, when you looked at a tree, you should, it should point its finger to Hashem, the Creator. You see a picture, you know there's an artist. You see a masterpiece, you know there's an artist. We look at the masterpiece, we dissect it, we take it to the lab, we study it. What masterpiece? I mean, what master? What artist? There is no artist. Where does this arrogance come from? But that's part and parcel of the wisdom. The wisdom detached from Hashem actually instills a tremendous sense of arrogance and takes you further away from the truth. And some of our biggest fools are scientists. So that's idolatry in a way. When you're you're a scientist and you're admiring the the essence of science and and great scientists that came before you, that's idolatry. Unless, unless the creative person connects it with the source of creativity. If you see the brilliance and the wisdom and you see the source and you see godliness, it leads you to a greater appreciation of godliness, then then it's a wonderful thing. Only a Jew could do that. A gorgeous scientist can that go back to the source with the... Uh, according to his level, a non-Jewish scientist who has faith, who's a believer, he can, he can, he can also appreciate. If he's open to it, he can also appreciate. The more you learn, really, Jew and as well as non-Jew, the more you delve into, the more you understand, the more you're in awe, and you see the infinite wisdom of Hashem, the infinite complexity of Hashem. But that doesn't come, doesn't seem to come naturally. And it doesn't come as an automatic result of the science. But when you study Torah, Torah, you digest holiness. You're digesting holiness. You're internalizing holiness. It makes you holy. It makes you look at the world in a holy way, in a genuine way, with clarity. Understand the world from the inside out, from God's point of view. Something from nothing. The miracle of creation, the miracle of existence, the astonishing miracle of creation. And it leads you to become holy and godly and good and kind and compassionate. Well, science doesn't necessarily lead you to anything. It's just an, it's just an end in itself. It's interesting. It's stimulating. It's fascinating. It's absorbing. Why, why, why? But doesn't necessarily make you a better person. Does it demand anything from you? Torah demands. Torah says, if you understand the truth, the reality that everything is interrelated, interconnected, there are implications. You can't divorce the personal, the subjective, from the objective. Every concept has a personal, uh, um, has, has a parallel, has to affect the person, impact the person in a positive way. How about literature? Poetry, great poetry, which talks about nature and about the godliness of nature and the can that be studied as well? The wonder, the wonder of the wonder nature, of the wonder creation. of nature. And that's what, that's what we're going to learn now. When a Jew is firmly grounded, when you are firmly grounded in Hashem, when you're firmly plugged in and connected to the ultimate reality and the true understanding of truth of reality from the inside out, when you're plugged into the bigger picture and you're plugged into the, the, the total truth and total reality, then 
everything could be beneficial. Because then everything, every, everything that you see in science and nature only enhances, enhances your appreciation and your understanding of Hashem and your sense of wonder for Hashem and your sense of humility. And that's really the sign between holiness and not holiness. When a person just pursues knowledge, secular knowledge, it makes you arrogant. It doesn't make you humble. The nature of Torah is it makes you humble. Moshe was the greatest man. He received the whole Torah. The most humble person that lived. That's a sign. That's a true sign of holiness. That's the difference between Torah and wisdom. The more wisdom you learn, the more philosophy you learn, the more arrogant, the more ivory tower intellectual you become, the more distant, the more remote, the more arrogant you become, the more you look down at the masses, you look down at people. The nature of Torah, of holiness, is the more you learn, the more you digest and absorb the Torah, which is holy, and it's holy assumptions, the the more humble, the more refined you become, the more gentle you become, the more loving you become, the more vibrant you become as a Jew, the more committed you are, the more connected you feel. Because you're grounded. As Maimonides says, God is the foundation of all foundation and the pillar of all pillars. Because when you have a strong foundation and anything you build on top enhances. But when the foundation is lacking, when there's no Torah and there's no holiness and there's no godliness, there's no foundation, all you have is a building, all you have is math and science and the whole thing collapses. Which is why the Rebbe, Babish Rebbe was trying so hard, pushing so strongly to get a moment of silence in the schools and all the public school systems that they should start the day with a moment of silence based on what Maimonides says. Because what's the point of studying math and science and all these, all these secular knowledge unless you have a foundation? Without a foundation, it just falls apart. There's nothing there. You have to have a foundation. The foundation is God is the knowledge of God. So if you start out the day with a moment of silence and you pray and you connect with Hashem, with the higher, higher being, higher, higher authority, then... When you pursue knowledge, you pursue your career, pursue your different uh, disciplines, it will enhance. It will lead you to, to wholesomeness and to morality and to ethics. Otherwise, there's a disconnect. People are brilliant and so on. They break every law. They're so brilliant. They're so cynical. They're so cool and detached. They don't care about anything. There's no respect and there's no laws and there's no rules and there's nothing. And you become God and you become the ultimate arbiter and you just create your own realities, delusions, and wreak havoc in the world around you. Soulless. A nice mecha- mechanical, meaningless, empty, nihilistic existence. A perfect product. A prodigy. A perfect product. A road scholar. Perfect product of university. Empty. Soulless. No meaning, no content, no principle, no conviction, no nothing. It's just a, just publicity for the sake of publicity. This is the tragic results of an education without a grounding, without a foundation. Grounded in godliness and holiness. So when you have a healthy foundation, then it, it's ennobling. The more you learn, the more you understand, the more, as, as Professor David says, the more you're in awe. 
the more you're in awe of Hashem's world, the awesomeness of life, the beauty of life, the, and it makes you humble. And it opens your heart. And it opens your mind. But other than that, you just become arrogant. Just proud of yourself. Empty pride, foolish pride. And it makes you impossible. Inhumane, inhuman. Some of the greatest novelists, some of the greatest literary luminaries of the last 300 years were rotten human beings. Monsters. Jack Rousseau was a wife beater. A horrible human being. You wouldn't want to be, you wouldn't want to be in his company. Yet he's, a, he's a, a god of the world of literature. In Judaism, we, we can't have respect for people like that. Measure of a person that is brilliance. Measure of a person that is a soul. So the more creative you become, the more arrogant you become, the more anti-Semitic you become, But if you're rooted and connected with holiness, with godliness, then the more humble you are, the more humane you become, the more loving. Today, the professors at the universities are 90% anti-Semitic. Hey, uh, that's the proof. It's almost, it's almost a correlation. The more you study secular knowledge and the more you delve deeper, it seems to be like it's almost a correlation. You become arrogant and you become anti-Semitic. With the ten Jews, <laughs> even the Jews. <laughs> that's right, because that's what happens when you study. When a Jew studies secular knowledge, it, it poisons your mind. It has a very detrimental effect. It takes a very strong Jew, and that's the example he's going to bring in a moment. It takes a very strong person who's very well grounded, who has his head screwed on straight, who has the clarity who has the depth, who has the roots, strong foundation, then he can engage in secular studies and it'll only ennoble him and enhance him and it'll, it'll become a, a tool, a powerful tool in his hands. But other than that, you have to be very careful. Let's not kid ourselves. There are many kids who came from very good homes, good Jewish education, and they were totally cooled off from Judaism. By the time they were through <laughs> with the with their secular education, they became cold, ice-cold Jews. Is that required in yeshivas in terms of what, what they learn in Yeah, yeah, I and mean, you have different yeshivas. Some yeshivas have, you know, high schools and have a dual program, Hebrew program and a, and a secular. secular program. And then you have schools that the kids just learn the basics. They learn math and reading and writing. But most of the time, they study, they study Torah all day. Now, we have to add another dimension here, especially we're talking about the United States of America. It's one thing, it's one thing if a person is born a doctor. You know, this, you know the parents gave birth to a child and they send out a, send out a card. You're invited to the bris of our son, the doctor. <laughs> it's one thing if a person is born a doctor. In other words, as a little child, they had it within them. They always were curious. They always, you knew, you can tell if, as little children, this one just loves to heal. So it's like his life's mission. If a person has an inner urge or an artist, a musician, 
a writer. A person has an inner urge from, from youth. Even before they can even fully understand what's going on, it's just something inside of them. God forbid that Judaism should suppress an urge, an instinct, a talent that God gave you. And say, no, you have to suppress it, study Torah all day, and ignore and suppress that creative talent that God gave you. God forbid. Because God gave you that talent. And that's part of you. God didn't create anything in this world by accident. He gave you that talent. You will not be a whole person. You will not be whole and complete. You have not fulfilled your individual unique mission in this world until you develop every aspect that God gives you. And Judaism will be the first one to encourage that child. But that's real education. Education is a response to an inner urge. But then we have the American phenomenon where everything is mass-produced. The cookie cutter. Everything is mass. That's the greatness of America. You know, the, you know the professor who gave the students an assignment to write a, a book report about the elephant. So the, so the German wrote three volumes about the anatomy of the elephant. The French student, of course, wrote about the love life of the elephant. <laughs> the American student wrote how to produce bigger and better elephants. <laughs> and the Jewish student wrote the elephant and the Jewish problem. <laughs> <laughs> so everything, everything here is mass produced so this concept the American concept of education that a person person is not considered a person is not considered educated unless unless you go to college And a person feels he's not a mensch unless he's a university graduate. If a person is, spends his life selling pencils and producing bigger and better pencils and running a pencil company, then he's a mensch. He has a degree, he's a mensch. A person is busy running a family and raising children. That's, that's, that's nothing. You're wasting your life. You're nobody. So this whole mentality of education is, is very superficial. That's not real education. If education is responding to an inner urge, a person has an inner urge to know. A person by nature, since he was a child, he's tinkering with toys. How do you make things? How do you build things? Or is trying to understand you know, the mysteries of life and tries to delve deeper. It's, it's in response to an inner urge. Anything that's in response to an inner urge, that's real education. And the Torah, God forbid, would not discourage it or suppress it. On the contrary, you have to develop every talent that Hashem gives you. But this whole idea of mass-produced, this conformity, everyone must. If, you're not, you don't go, if you don't pass through college or university, you're not a mensch. That's very superficial. And people, how many people are forced to go into professions that they have no interest in doing, but they're just living because their parents pressure them, you know, to become a doctor or become a this or that, and they had no interest. It wasn't them. But because this pressure that, you know, you have to... You know the discussion, there's a discussion amongst the, the medical world when the fetus is considered viable in the womb or, or, or after, after birth. But you know the Jewish position. 
the feet is only considered viable once it graduates from medical school. <laughs> this is the so this whole conformity, this whole external, this is not real education. So the Alter Rebbe is not talking about that type, that type of inner urge where a person has this, this from, from when they were young, they had this inner drive to know. Because that's a gift from Hashem, and that's a talent that a person has to develop. And that's coming from a good place. But it's this external, superficial type of mass-produced education that was really frowned upon. The sense that a person has, I'm not a mensch unless I go through A, B, and C, and D, and meanwhile I'm neglecting my Torah studies, and meanwhile I'm neglecting my Jewish education, and meanwhile I'm taking the best years of my life, instead of focusing and concentrating the best years of my life on Torah, and studying God's mind, engaging in, in, the, same, in the same things that engage and occupy Hashem, which is the Torah. Instead, I'm wasting it and studying others, other things. So you have to put everything in context. On top of page 131. Moreover, the impurity of the intellectual disciplines of nations is greater than the impurity of idle speech. For the latter clothe and defile only the emotions which emanate from the holy element of Ruach within his divine soul. By tainting them with the impurity of Klipa Noga, contained in idle speech, which is derived from the evil element of Ruach, which is one of the components of this Klipa in his animal soul, as mentioned above. The godly soul and the animal soul are both composed of four spiritual elements, fire, air, water, and earth. The emotions, such as love and fear, which one expresses in idle talk, emanate from the element of air. Thus, idle speech defiles the emotional attributes of the divine soul, which emanate from the holy element of air. By using them in the service of the animal soul's element of air, its emotional attributes, which are impure since they derive from Klipanoga. Idle speech does not, however, defile the levels of Chabad, the intellectual faculties in his soul for it is but words of foolishness and ignorance. Since these are not intellectual matters, the intellect remains uninvolved and untainted, not so in the case of the science of the nation. Thereby one clothes and defiles his divine soul's faculties of Chabad with the impurity of the Klipa Noah contained in, the, in those sciences, whither they have fallen through the shattering of the vessels out of the hinder part of Chachma of Holiness, as is known to those familiar with the esoteric wisdom. Thus, the study of these sciences contaminates the intellectual faculties of the godly soul and is therefore much worse than idle speech, which contaminates only the emotional faculties. So when a person engages in idle speech and wastes his time, okay, so he's just contaminating his, his emotions. He's just corrupting his emotions. And he knows that he's, he's human and he's weak and it's a human weakness. But when you contaminate your mind and when you corrupt your mind and then you start justifying and rationalizing all sorts of behavior and you become very cool towards godly things, towards holy things, and you become very detached, that's, that's, that affects the person much more. That has a, um, you know, 
unfortunately, we see it. There are people who engage in very in behavior that they they know is not proper behavior, but they're ashamed, they're embarrassed. They don't try to excuse it, and they don't try to rationalize it. There's an intellectual honesty. I'm weak. Then you have intellectual corruption, this intellectual dishonesty. When not only don't aren't you ashamed, don't you feel bad? Suddenly you turn it around. Suddenly it becomes a mitzvah. <laughs> the great rabbi in Eastern Europe says, a person sins once, you're ashamed. You sin twice, you're not so ashamed. Three times you turn into a mitzvah. Suddenly it becomes a cause. This right and that right. and There's no shame. Pr- pride. And, and you know, that's, that's intellectual corruption. As we discussed the other weeks, you see the difference between the Ashkenazic Jews and the Sephardic Jews. In Ashkenaz, in the, amongst the Sephardic Jews, there's tremendous intellectual honesty. There are no reform, there are no conservative, there are no orthodox. They have such clarity. There's one Torah, there's one God, there's one Jewish people, there's one set of standards. That's the way it's been for 3,800 years. Truth doesn't change. I live up to it, I don't live up to it. But if I don't live up to it, to make myself feel good, I'm not going to suddenly decide, now I don't have to do this. That's corrupt. That's intellectually dishonest. I lose the game. Oh, I'm a sore loser. I'm going to change the rules of the game. So I won. You know, as Avner Steinzel said when they came up with patrilineal descent, he said, if someone had $100 and suddenly declares, I have $200, and suddenly the Jewish people doubled because of patrilineal descent, he says, if you ran your business like that, you would end up in jail. I mean, it's totally dishonest. So instead of admitting failure, that maybe I did not succeed, and my children are not interested in being Jewish. Maybe this whole approach of compromise and not telling them the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, trying to lie to our children and telling them it's not important, you can chop off a finger here and cut off a hand there, and it's not relevant today. And as a result of that, the results are in. It doesn't work. It's a total failure because it just leads to intermarriage and assimilation. You think you're compromising, you think you're going to retain the youth on the contrary. The more you lie to them, they lose all respect and it just almost kind of naturally leads to intermarriage and situation. So instead of being honest and saying, you know, I blew it. This is the wrong approach. Instead, you rationalize and when the mind is corrupt, you sanctify compromise. Suddenly you come and rationalize compromise, you sanctify it and, and you're dishonest. And that's very, that's very dangerous. Because as long as you're intellectually honest, even if you're emotionally corrupt, you're intellectually honest, then there's a chance. There's hope. You know the way back. When you're ready, you'll come back. But when the mind becomes so sedrate and so confused, you don't even know yet anymore what's, what's, what's up and what's down and what's right and what's wrong. So that's a corruption of the mind. Corruption of the mind is much deeper and much more difficult to deal with than the corruption of the heart. So he's saying that's the pitfall and the danger that you have to realize and you have to acknowledge. The pitfall and the danger of studying secular knowledge. A um, hundred years ago, there was a famous Jewish historian, old, I'm sure many of you heard, uh, a Gratz. He wrote, he was a secular Jewish historian. And you should see what he writes about the Kabbalah. 
he didn't. He couldn't find enough words to humiliate, to denigrate. He was so ashamed, so embarrassed by the Kabbalah. He says this, this, this superstitious part of Judaism, this folklore, this this ancient backwards. He was so embarrassed of this whole portion of Judaism called Kabbalah. And this was a product of the Enlightenment. A university graduate who studied math and science and the natural sciences. And, and as a result, he was embarrassed and ashamed of, of Kabbalah. Read today. Read modern physics today. The respect, the awe, that the Goyim, the non-Jews, write about the Kabbalah. Everything that Einstein wrote about and everything that Neil Bohr wrote about, all the advances, the cutting edges of modern physics, everything has been written in the Zayir and the Kabbalah. Now the first beginning to understand the mysteries and the secrets of the Kabbalah was all written thousands of years ago. But up until modern physics, they simply didn't have the tools to appreciate it. So what happened as a result of their absorbing these seemingly innocent, innocuous knowledge? What's wrong with studying science and math and, and, and all the wisdoms of the world? I'm just, I'm just studying it for its own sake. What danger is it? How could it possibly corrupt me or affect me negatively? But it does and it has. Because it's not coming from a holy place. When you study Torah, you digest, you internalize holiness. The whole assumption of Torah is God. And it affects you and it elevates you and it, it makes you humble and it ennobles you. Versus when you study secular studies. And now we come to the exception. Unless... Unless one employs them, these sciences as a useful instrument, for example, as a means of earning a more affluent livelihood with which to be able to serve Hashem. A person who studies for the sake of earning a living... In other words, that's not his identity. His identity is... His mind is engaged and occupied with studying Torah, understanding Hashem's mind. And that's what engages your mind, and that's how you identify yourself, and that gives you your understanding of reality, and understanding of, of, of wholesomeness, and believing in wholesomeness, and believing in perfection, and believing in godliness. But you have to, make, you have to earn a living. So you study... You study a, uh, whether it's accounting or a medicine, whatever it is, whatever you need, in order to make, to make an honest living. So your intention is for the sake of Hashem. You're doing it as a Jew. As a Jew, I have the responsibility to earn an honest living. It's the first question they ask you after 120 years. Did you, did you do business honestly? The very first question. Even before they ask you if you study Torah. And you have to make an honest living. Just like a Jew has to keep Shabbos, a Jew has to keep Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. There's a way a Jew lives and behaves on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. So you have to learn a, uh, you have to learn a, a trade. You have to learn something. But your intent is to serve Hashem. It's part of your service of Hashem. It's not an end in itself. It's part of a context. So when you're bringing Hashem into the picture then it could be a, a noble experience. It doesn't have to be a corrupting experience. It doesn't have to be a degrading experience. It could be a noble experience. There, were, there are many people who actually, after they get married, they go to, to, uh, to night school to learn a trade. You know, they're not there to, to, to absorb the whole atmosphere of the university, of the college, which 
with all the other things that come with it. They're just there. They have a focus. They have a goal. I'm here to study. I'm here to, to get my degree. I'm here to graduate in order that I, should, I can pursue my career. So if you have that focus and you have that context, then it's a, it's a kosher experience. Then it's an ennobling experience. It doesn't have to be a degrading experience. That's what he's trying to say. When you study secular knowledge, it's God, it's, it's not, it's God forbid, it's not prohibited. It's wisdom. It's God's, God's created this world with tremendous wisdom. And you're studying God, that wisdom. But it has to be in the right context. If you have in mind that you're studying Torah in order to make a living, then that experience becomes a kosher experience and it could be an ennobling, uplifting experience. Aren't there minimal government standards about what has to be taught in the I don't know the technicalities how how they do it, or but there, it's a fact. There are schools that have full secular studies. Most most yeshivas, most yeshivas have dual programs. They have in the morning they learn, you know, in the morning and early afternoon they learn, you know, the Jewish studies, and then and then in, and it's actually a, that's why Jewish kids are very well uh, are sought after because. You know, they're trained to carry two full full programs. You know, here they're studying a full Jewish curriculum. And then after that, they start and they, and they study a full secular curriculum. And, and this is from, you know, from, from first grade on. So they're trained to really absorb a lot of information. So it makes for, you know, they make for very good, uh, very good students. That's, that's why they excel in, in college and university. Uh, but then there are schools who don't. You know, the children study the basic things that they need, math and, and you know, etc. But uh, most of their time is engaged in study of Torah. Unless, again, unless the child shows a, a, a natural inclination, a propensity. If a child has a talent, a natural inclination, then the Torah would be the first one to encourage that person to develop that talent, to spend time and develop that talent. Because if God gives a person a talent, then... It's divine providence. It's part of who you are. You can't ignore it and you can't suppress it. You're not allowed to suppress it. Because if you suppress it, you're really denying God. God gave you that talent. He gave you that curiosity. He gave you that interest. And if you have a natural enthusiasm for a certain thing, you definitely should pursue it. You will not be a whole person. You will not be a whole Jew unless you develop every aspect of yourself, every ability that Hashem gave you. But if a person doesn't have a natural inclination, and just to force them to spend hours and hours every day studying, studying things that are not relevant to their life, instead, the best years of their life, they can be fully engaged in Torah, that's not a mitzvah. Just for the sake to be considered educated, believe me, when you're through with a thorough Jewish education, you've studied philosophy, you've studied theology, you've studied history, you've studied legal law, there isn't a single aspect of human wisdom that you haven't studied, and in depth, and in a very high level. So you have nothing to be afraid of that, you know, that the, 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 paper, the paper pusher, the pencil pusher, that's an educated man. But the, the shiva student who spent all his life studying Torah feels inferior because I don't have that degree. That's superficial. That's just conforming to something external. That's not real. That's not reason enough to take the best years of your life and to fully engage in, in things that are not relevant or necessary.
But then he adds another aspect. This, he refers to very special people, a unique group of people. Well, unless he knows how to apply them as sciences in the service of Hashem, or to his better understanding of his Torah, e.g., he utilizes mathematics to better understand the laws of the sanctification of the new moon. This is the reason why Maimonides and Nachmanides of blessed memory and their peers engaged in them in the sciences, since they were able to utilize this knowledge in the service of Hashem and Torah. So here he's referring to very special people, like Maimonides, Nachmanides, all the Talmudic rabbis, the Rebbe, who not only studied and were familiar with all the secular sciences and wisdoms, all of them, the Rebbe was able to converse to anyone who entered his room, from the modern physicist, the musician, to the mathematician, to, and he spoke to them the contemporary language. Although he went to university in the 1930s, he was able to speak to them the cutting edge of what was going on in the 80s in all of these fields and sciences, in their own language. So obviously the Rebbe kept current with everything that was going on. He used to read all these journals and, and books. Because someone in that caliber... It's not just a question of studying something because I need, to, I need to develop a career, so I have to study this in order to make a living. It's even studying for the sake of studying, but knowing that the more I understand, the more they understand in the secular knowledge, it will come to use, it will help them and enhance their understanding of Torah. Like in order to understand the laws of Kiddush HaKedah, of sanctifying the new moon, you have to be an astronomer. You have to know very well the whole, the whole world of astronomy. So the more you learn, it will come to use. Even if now I can't find a particular use for this and that piece of information. But the more knowledgeable they are, and the more they understand God's world, and the more they understand nature, and the more they understand all the laws of nature and the way the world works, it, it, they know that it will enhance and it will, it will help them in their understanding of the Torah. So therefore, their studying of secular knowledge was seamlessly connected with the studying of Torah. It wasn't two separate things. It, wasn't, it was all part of one thing. It was, it was there in order to help them better understand the Torah. So the deeper they understood the laws of nature and, and, and physics and, 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 and medicine and all, all the sciences, the more, the better it would help them understand the Torah. So this is part of, of worshiping God. So obviously for such high souls, such high level souls, who have such clarity, and they perceive and experience the reality of God, that there is no other reality but God. And that the entire world, how God is the foundation of all foundations and the pillar of all pillars, of all knowledge. And that everything in this world is something from nothing, is a creation of something from nothing. To them, godliness was so palpable, was so alive, so to them, studying secular knowledge was part of worshiping God. It was part of enhancing their understanding of the Torah, enhancing their appreciation of the Torah, and their ability to explain the Torah to their generation and to themselves. So it was, it was a seamless unity. It wasn't two separate things. So for them, of course, the whole pursuit of knowledge, and they didn't just study Torah in order for, to, for, to develop a career. They studied wisdoms. They studied all the wisdoms. Because to them, they were able to elevate everything. All of their knowledge became part, helping them understand the Torah, helping them better understand, better appreciate godliness. The more they learned, the more science they learned, the more physics they learned, the more math they learned, the more medicine they learned, the more botany, anything they learned, the more godly they became. 
the more humble they became, the closer to Hashem they became. So obviously, this is a very high soul. Who can compare to them? These are individuals, Maimonides, Nachmanides, the Rebbe. You're dealing with very unique individuals. The Rebbe went to college, was the first one to discourage any of his Hasidim from going to college. And they asked him, but well, you yourself went to college. He says, that's why. I know, I know what college is. <laughs> and I'm telling you. Of course, there were, there were exceptions. If a person was a Baltruva, a person spent all his life going through the school system and starting college, and then they ended up in yeshiva, the Rebbe would be the first one to encourage that person to take a year or two studying yeshiva, but then go back and finish, finish, finish your degree. But for someone who was not born into that, someone who was born, and for them to go into that environment, the Rebbe was very, very, felt very strongly about it. Besides for the reasons that we're learning here, because we see the, the potential corruption and the negative impact it can have on you, because it plays subtle, game, subtle, subtle, has a subtle effect on your mind and your whole perception of reality. And suddenly you become very cool and detached and you lose that fiery, passionate faith and, and joy and, and, and that almost innocence, innocence. You lose that innocence. You become a little jaded and skeptical and, and it takes you so far away from the truth. And so much so that there's so many people who really believe, still believe, that there's a conflict in science and faith. They're troubled by it. They're very troubled. The more they study, it affects their faith. Those who truly study in depth, you know, suddenly they're bothered by, by this conflict. So it, it could have, potentially, it could have a very negative effect on let alone the environment today. The aggressive, hostile, aggressive, secular, atheistic environment that permeates college today. Ideally, universities should be the most godly places on earth. Because the more you learn, the more you study, the infinite complexity of life, you should become humble and godly. And, and you know, college students should be the most spiritual people on, on earth. College professors should be the most spiritual people on earth. But unfortunately, that's not the fact. A few exceptions. Professor David Connison, right? Most, 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 the atmosphere that permeates college is not an atmosphere of godliness, of wholesomeness. It's a, it's a different atmosphere. It's that the colleges in the United States were founded by the uh, religious organizations for the most part. Interesting. They were even thinking of making Hebrew the official language of, of, of America. Right? The Yale has Hebrew inscriptions. They were thinking, there was a thought, to make Hebrew the official language in the 17th century of America. Yeah, so you, you wouldn't need Opan. <laughs> the whole world will be speaking Hebrew today. <laughs> Yeah. What about the importance of preparing one for the future, making a living, oh. dealing in the secular world? Because basically, that's where we are. So that, that's the exception that he says. He said, unless one employs these sciences as a useful instrument, as a means of earning a more affluent livelihood, with which to be able to serve Hashem. So then that's different, because then you're, you're thinking about Hashem. You're doing it as a Jew. It's part of your Jewishness. It's not like I'm compartmentalizing. I have my Yiddishkeit and then I have... This is part of being a Yid. Part of being a Yid is to serve Hashem. Part of being a Yid is earning an honest living. So I'm doing it for the sake... Hashem wants me to do that. 
So my learning is permeated with a consciousness and an awareness that this is my way of serving Hashem. So when a Jew injects an awareness of Hashem, then that activity becomes elevated. Then that activity becomes, becomes a, a, a godly activity. Then instead of corrupting and degrading you, it actually ennobles you, as we see many, many, many examples. But you have to have, you have, to have that conscious awareness. It has to be part of your connection with Hashem. Then it only strengthens you. But he, he was discussing earlier just studying for the sake of study, without any thought of Hashem. I'm not thinking about Hashem. Divorced from my Jewishness. I'm, I'm just enjoying the study, the pursuit of the seven wisdoms, just for its own sake. It's innocent. What am I doing wrong? He says, beware. It's not so innocent. Because it has a very subtle effect on your mind. And the whole underlying assumption of secular knowledge is so different than the whole underlying assumption of, of, of Torah. The whole viewpoint of secular knowledge of the ego, rational mind is cause and effect, something from something. Well, the whole underlying assumption of, of Torah and the whole perspective of reality is that the foundation is Bereshis Baralikim, that the whole reality is something from nothing. So this whole frame of reference in which science works is very limited, as modern physics admits that the mind is so limited, it cannot possibly grasp reality. And they can only talk about probabilities. They can't really talk about absolute truths and absolute realities. While the Torah does speak about absolute truths and absolute realities. Truths that you base your life on, you live your life on. So it's, it's two different assumptions, two different world perspectives. When you study Torah, you're digesting those holy assumptions, those genuine, truthful assumptions. When you're studying uh, secularism just for its own sake not for the sake of earning a living or for developing a career so you can raise your family and raise a Jewish family and, 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 and live a Jewish life but just for its own sake as an end in itself then you're digesting all those negative assumptions and it can have a very negative impact on the person what about the concept of Torah okay so again the Derech is in order to enable me to study Torah I have Derech in order that I should make an honest living. So again, I'm thinking about Hashem. When the Derech Eretz, when I, is, is also for the sake of Hashem, L'Shem Shemayim. Everything a Jew does is L'Shem Shemayim. The Derech Eretz is also L'Shem Shemayim. It's not Derech Eretz, I'm a Jew, and when I'm at home, I'm a Jew, and then when I'm in the streets, I'm something else. What's Derech Eretz? Derech means you should, you, should, you should be a man of the world. You should, you should, be, uh, you should have a living. You should, you, should, you should be a man of the world. So, but the Derech Eretz for a Jew is also for the sake of heaven. Everything a Jew does is for the sake of heaven. So as long as whatever you're doing, like when you eat, you eat for the sake of heaven, to have strength, to be healthy, to have strength in order to serve Hashem. I'm doing business in order, in order that I should be able to serve Hashem. Everything that I do should be L'Shem Shemayim. When a Yid injects in everything that he does, L'Shem Shemayim, then that, that act becomes a noble act, an elevating act. And we elevate it to godliness and become something holy, something beautiful, something special. But he's, what he's discussing is, if you remove that element, if you're not thinking L'Shem Shemayim, I'm just doing it as, as a human being, I just want to pursue knowledge and information. What's wrong? He says, no. Because the whole assumption of that knowledge is very, is very uh, it's, it's a cover. And it can take you away from, from, from the Emmas. And it could be a degrading experience for the Nisham. And you have to be very, very careful because the effect is very subtle and very deep and very hard to detect. But when you think about Hashem, then on the contrary, then everything that you do becomes elegant.
This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.